Working drummer. Now kick it. This is the Working Drummer Podcast, serving up perspectives, experiences, and stories from ground-level working pros. Advice, tips, and secrets on how to build a career in the music business. Hey everybody, this is Matthew Krause, and you are listening to the podcast Working Drummer. Today my guest is drummer Russ Miller. Russ is a multi-platinum recording artist and has played on multiple Grammy Award-winning recordings with combined sales of over 26 million copies. His musical versatility has led him to work with an incredible list of many international artists and legends like Ray Charles, Natalie Cole, Nelly Furtado. Most recently, he's been touring with Andrea Bocelli and Indian superstar Kavita Krishnamurthy. We spent some time talking about his work in L.A., a lot of the session stuff that he does with movies and TV, and we also get into some gear talk with some of the product development that Russ has been involved in. To find out more about this episode and all the episodes we've done, you can find every episode from one to over 100 on workingdrummer.net. You can find us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. You can subscribe to us on iTunes, and while you're there, please leave a rating and review. That helps us grow. Hey folks, can we talk snare drums real quick? Dreamy, loud, bright, poppy, clean, articulate snares, and well, do you believe it, love at first sight? Okay, first sound. Well, before I get into all that, let me tell you, the folks at KHS America invited me back out to their place to experience a few new snare drums they launched at Winter Nam. And the drum I fell in love with, I was mentioning, it's one of the new Mapex Black Panther Design Lab series snares. It's called the Heartbreaker, a 14 by 6 8-ply mahogany shell with reinforcement rings. I could instantly hear the possibilities with this drum, and our friends at KHS America allowed me to take this drum on a test drive. I've used it live and in the studio, and let me just say, it got noticed. Punchy yet warm, it never lost its beautiful tone, even as I tuned it lower and lower. The other snares in this line include the Cherry Bomb, an 8-ply cherry wood precise-sounding snare available in 14x6 or 13x5.5, and the Equinox, a 14x5 6-ply maple snare that's described as classic, bright, and articulate. Yes, all true. Some of the shared features of these four drums are the pure sound snares and the micro lock, cylinder drive with the butt end adjuster, and English mat. Okay, you know that little click click you feel on the throw that keeps the snares in place? That's what I'm talking about. So here is my conversation with drummer Russ Miller. How was New Zealand, man? Is that where you were? I was. I was there a couple of weeks ago. I love New Zealand. It's a beautiful place, and, and um, the people are great. I mean, they got a flourishing scene. I mean, really? if, you, if, if you know, if you just step back and go, well, the place is basically the size of California with, a, you know, one-fifth of the people that's even in California. And they got two chains of music stores, similar to like a guitar center, but more and more pro-level. And they got 25 stores each. And there's another chain that has 15 or 20 stores. And, I mean, there's gigs everywhere and guys are playing. And every event that I did was packed and in in sizable venues. So guys are coming out to see stuff. And it's a pretty happening scene. That's amazing. <laughs> you know, I, mean, I thought it was Flight of the Concords yeah. and that was it. <laughs> yeah and uh, lord of the Rings. yeah but it's uh yeah i kept going are we going to mordor man can i go to mordor and it does look beautiful I, I i've been to asia but i've never been to new zealand or australia i think that's that's definitely on my bucket list to, to do yeah it's a, 
it's a cool place to go. You'll like it. I mean, I love Australia, um, especially the Gold Coast, Mel- uh, Melbourne, and up Brisbane, and it's it's sort of like Florida, um, <laughs> beautiful like beach type, you know, resort towns, and yeah. um, you know, the ocean's awesome. I mean, it's the ocean's full of great white sharks, so you can't get get out there and mess around too much, but. Uh, <laughs> It, it, it's a. You, I think you'd like it. It's a good desk. Like if you wanted a vacation somewhere, that's a great place, the Gold Coast of Australia, because there's no language barrier, but it feels like you're in a foreign country. You know. Yeah, I kind of wanted to talk about um, real quick, kind of what's been going on this month, what's going on maybe in the coming months. If you could maybe talk about um, kind of what you're into, kind of bring us up to date with current news in Russ Miller world. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's see. Um, gig front, you know, mm-hmm. I got uh, still have some Andrea Bocelli things yeah. sprinkled about. Um, those are here and there, different places, um, usually. And it's all over the world, really. Um, one thing about him is he's just a huge star everywhere. You know, it's yeah. like a, yeah. fills an arena in the Philippines and then does it in, you know, Norway and then, you know, Johannesburg. So that's cool. Um, I have, uh, uh, I've been working the past several years with um, kind of the, the most famous singer from India. And um, her name is Kavita Krishnamurti. And uh, she's sort of the Barbara Streisand of India, I would guess we would say. You know, a little bit older generation, but just a superstar there. One of the big Bollywood singers, sang on all, a lot of those hits and a lot of the big movie soundtracks. And kind of like Barbara Streisand, where she crossed over to movies and music. And yeah, I mean, she and she's like the judge on the Indian American Idol and so on. Um, and her husband is Dr. L. Subramaniam, and he's one of the fusion pioneers of Indian music, and he's been around for a very long time, and all his records are, I mean, full of everybody. George Duke and Tony Williams and Herbie Hancock and Ron Carter and blah, blah, blah. Wow. It just goes on. And so the last record I did with him was me and Stanley Clark and Herbie Hancock, and uh, Larry Coryell is in that band with me, who we just lost. Um, but, uh, those gigs are great because sometimes we'll go, like we just did two nights at Madison Square Garden not too long ago. And and then Kavita would come out and do all her hits and all the big stuff. And of course she fills the arena, but then, uh, part of the show is her husband and it's always amazing Indian fusion music. And it's all these awesome percussionists playing tabla and tavel and, and uh, uh, it's just a, it's just an awesome music experience. I mean, to play that level of music with that, you know, in that level of venue is just mm-hmm. kind of unheard of. You know, it's like, yeah. Uh, it- so it's that's really cool. And um, I've been doing those live things, and then uh, I have uh, my band Arrival that uh, is sort of my solo band to support my very various records and stuff over the years. Um, that band is, uh, we have a bunch of stuff booked for the summer coming and then things at Asia. We just did an Asian tour at the end of last year. Okay. And um, we recorded that. And uh, we have a new, we actually have a new album coming out called East West. And we recorded a bunch of gigs 
here in the States for the West part. And then we recorded a bunch of shows in uh, China and Asia, like Hong Kong and so on. And that's the West part. So we got some of the same live album is from over in Asia and some of it from here. And that's coming out and we're going to go out and support that. And um, other than that, um, I still do Tyrant on FX. Uh, I do two Tyler Perry TV shows. The Have and Have Nots, and um, they're kind of like soap operas, but on Tyler Perry uh, on the Wii Network. Okay. And then I just finished Continuum not too long ago, which was a sci-fi show uh, on the Sci-Fi Network. That just ended. Um, the last movie that was out that's in the theaters was Billy the, Billy Lynn's Long Halftime Walk and The Storks, and then I just worked on Wonder Woman. Oh, that's cool. That's yeah. And then um yeah, I got some events coming uh for Zildjian and Mapex and um where I'm kind of the featured player with different bands, um like the big bands at colleges and things like that. I got those in San Antonio next week or next month. And that I can't remember too much more. <laughs> yeah, yeah. A, it, it, yeah, man. It's there's a couple of things uh, that you're doing that just really uh, strikes me as as just fascinating, and I think it's it's more of the the unique type of work that you're doing that I I just haven't had a chance to discuss with any other drummer, and I it's a combination of things. If if possible, maybe kind of split these two things up. Sure. One of them is the. Um, doing doing sessions for soundtracks and different things like that. I want to get into that, but before I do, kind of while we're on the Andrea Bocelli and, and this other Indian artist that you're working with, there seems to be a very international, a uh, lot, of, lot of work that you do with international acts or internationally recognized acts that cover genres of music that, as, as most of our listeners are, come from a very rooted in Western culture, we grow yeah. up uh, listening and, and working on uh, pop and rock and jazz and fusion and and you know we dive into Latin and Latin styles, but it still encompasses a very Western culture. Sure. Uh, and it sounds like a lot of the things that I see on your discography and the things that you're doing is rooted in more just outside our wheelhouse. And so I'm just fascinated at that and re really curious to kind of know how do you, well, first of all, how did you get involved in that? What was your approach? Um, and is there anything that you're doing in the studio or live that was new for you? And, and maybe did you... How did you prepare? Does it make sense? That's a lot in one question. I'm sorry. But. No, that's okay. Yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. Yeah, I mean, let me break it down a little bit. I mean, I grew up in Ohio around yes. yeah. my grandparents, so mm -hmm. I I kind of grew up playing big band music before rock and, and pop and things, um, which now that I look back was just awesome because it, it gave me a different approach, a different understanding of uh, – feels mm -hmm. that um i think the biggest issue to be honest is people that grow up with duple meter feels meaning like all they listen to and play is eighth notes and 16th notes and 
triplets and the feel of triplets. It might be a fill here or there and things like that, but that's an odd groove for them. Not not odd that it's hard to play. It's just if you look at what guys are playing now, let's say 85% of it is eighth notes and 16th notes feels, and then maybe a small percentage is triplet feels. Um, I mean, there's some swing in country music, and there's, you know, obviously uh, there's a half swing in hip-hop, and early hip-hop had a full swing in it, and and New Jack swing and things were based on 16th note triplets. But I see a lot of guys who build facility only in duple-metered fields and things divisible by two, and like like ace and sixteenths. And so for me, starting starting that way, I, I had a basis of what, what things felt like with a swing feel. And, you know, people use the term swing, kind of almost to just describe jazz playing, but there's a swing in everything. I mean, John Bonham had an awesome swing in his yes. playing. That's what made it feel so good. Yes, yes. Um, Ian Pace, a lot of those, because those guys grew up listening to swing music, that's that's the era that they grew up in. And then they ended up playing rock and roll. But if you listen to those drummers, you listen to Ginger, Ginger Baker, Ian Pace, or uh, John Bonham, or Keith Moon, or any of those guys that were great, you know, founding rock drummers, they all had a swing in their playing. And I think that that's crucial to parting, starting to expand into other styles and f- being comfortable in that way. Now, that, that being said, I went to the University of Miami uh, in Florida, so I, I moved to Florida um, around 19 years old or so. And then I lived down there uh, till 1995 when I moved to uh, Los Angeles. And that experience for me, and you mentioned the drum set crash course earlier, that was sort of the foundation for me even being able to put that book and those DVDs and things together because I had I came up with this learning process to figure out these styles because when I moved to Miami, I didn't know nothing. I, I didn't know anything about Latin music. Okay. It's a good place and, to go, you know. It, yeah, yeah. To and, learn. and I literally, I had been doing gigs for years. I had been a professional since I was 15 years old. I was playing five nights a week in high school and, wow. you know, all this stuff. I had done tons of stuff. Um, I could not get arrested in Miami when I first <laughs> went there. I couldn't get a, I remember auditioning for a cruise ship gig for $65 a night and I got, I didn't get it because <laughs> I, I couldn't play all those things. They were just shooting these things off to me. Play a rumba, play a cha-cha-cha, you know, yeah. uh, play reggae, play, you know, and I was like, oh, boy. So the story is I actually met Hector Nessiasu, who's Alex Acuna's nephew. Yes, yes. Now, Alex is, Alex's name is actually, actually Alex Nessiasu. But um, I met Hector, and I was valet parking at the time trying to pay for college. And... Um, I, I would save up money and I would hire Hector. He was a percussionist. He didn't play drum set that much. And he I would hire him to come to my apartment and play all this stuff for me. And I would write out all the different rhythms Wow. and, and figure out how to play it on the drums. Because back then, there just wasn't all the books on that stuff. that Now it's like there's tons of stuff out there. Oh, I know. know. Yeah. 
Yeah. But back then, it wasn't like that. You just couldn't say, how do I play a cha-cha-cha and have variations of it so that I'm not stuck in one two-bar loop, you know, and what what should happen during the fills and, you know, that kind of stuff. And then do that for 20-some styles of of Afro-Brazilian and Afro-Cuban music and try to build that that, you know, that vocabulary to play that stuff. So I got into working on those things and understanding different fields, understanding uh, the character of stuff, and then coming up with what I always called, you know, being convincing hmm. at pl- at playing those styles. Meaning, I, you know, I'm not Alex, and I'm, I'm not El Negro, and, I, you know, I'm not those guys who grew up only basically playing those things. So I'm never going to play like Jimmy Branley, you know, on drum set. I mean, he's from Cuba, and right, that's right. what he did. And in the same way, he's not going to play American feels like we do. Right. And so the the issue is I got to be convincing so mm-hmm. that someone who did grow up playing that on bass or keyboards or guitar, they feel comfortable with me playing those styles. That's the goal. And how how do you become convincing? Well, I, it, 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 there's a process of a lot of things. And mm-hmm. I mean, part of it is definitely knowing what the foundational rhythms are, what the grooves are. Those are all simple things. Um, but l- doing a lot of listening yeah. to that music and understanding the feel of it. Um, and I mean, it's a, every music style is a language, right? So, I mean, if you think about how do you become convincing in speaking Italian, mm-hmm. it's like, you know, you can't quite do it out of a book. You have to go to Italy. You have to be around Italian people speaking it. And then you hear the way they phrase things. Then you hear the way they sort of accentuate certain words. And it's all the exact same thing with playing. You hear the way those players accentuate certain phrases and feels. And then you, you kind of bring that in like a sponge and understand, you know, what are the key components of those things that that make it what it is. Yeah. It's like and, going to Olive Garden and expecting to understand what Italian food is like. It's just not right, going to happen. You've got to right, dig. <laughs> exactly. That's exactly it. And, and, you know, that's what I hear so much from guys going, you know, I really need to work on my swing playing. And I'm like, well, what's the last swing record you listened to? <laughs> right. Well, I don't, and, and I don't own any swing records. <laughs> and you go, well, man, if you've never heard Spanish, ever spoken to you how do you think you're ever going to speak spanish right right you've got you have to hear the language mm-hmm. so you have to kind of inundate yourself in the music and i, I got a a very organized music library um and i did i do that column in modern drummer every month concepts column yes and and one of those i talked about building your reference library because for me I have it all uh, by genre and it's alphabetical and I go through and I, I put in my iTunes. What's great about the digital iTunes one, once I import it, is it can reside in different places other than just under its name on my CD shelf. You know, I can take the music and put it under Afro-Brazilian in a folder and then put it under, you know, Sambas in five in another folder oh and put it, you know, uh, Batucada grooves uh, mm-hmm. from... 110 to 150 in another folder and so I, I go through and I have a very organized reference library I always thought of it kind of like the books on the shelf of my of my lawyer's office when I go in there he's got a reference library that every one of those books displays a precedent for a different conversation and that's the way that I look at 
listening for music and my library is every one of those tracks and records set a precedent for those particular styles now that's if you you have good music and good players <laughs> you can't right, right. you know you got to search those out but once you have that you know kind of looking at it like that to you know in development and understanding and and approaching it like that and i mean you know not to rattle on about it but i'll give you you know a great example i mean in in 2000 maybe 2 mm-hmm. i uh the Bavarian Music Academy asked me in in Bavaria Germany asked me to come and do this camp called the Marktoberdorf Rhythms Camp and I hadn't heard of it until that point but when I got there I realized that it was been it's been going on for a very long time and it was one of the first if not the first big drum camps in the world and Everybody had done it. Everybody from Terry Bozio to Billy Cobham to Alex to Acuna to Steve Smith to everybody. And when I got there, it was me, Steve Smith, Jeff Hamilton, Ed Thickpin, uh, Adam Nussbaum. Uh, I can't even remember, but it's 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 unbelievable. It's like it's not it's like ten headliner guys. Jeez. And you you would spend all week teaching these classes, and then every night one of the guys gives a clinic and then at the end of that we actually put together a 2 hour show where we all play together doing something and we would Steve and Jeff and I would do like a brush trio thing or you know or, or me and Adam would do like a hi-hat solo thing together or we you know all kinds of stuff but they they have different percussionists there and they had a lot of indian percussionists yeah and um one of them was named Karuna Murthy and he he played table, which is I don't know if you're hip to that, but it's it's kind of like a uh, a bata looking thing where you sit down and you play. There's drummer heads on either side. Okay. One one of them you play with your hand like a tabla, and the other one you have this big stick and you play it um, uh, on like you know pretty hard with the, this big sort of club looking stick. Okay, and he so he starts playing all these corvai and Indian rhythms and. Steve Smith and I kind of looked at each other like, what is happening? Like, <laughs> I never heard anything like that. And and it had been a very long time since I heard something that, and I mean, I know we've all experienced this at one time or another, but it had been a very long time since I heard something blow right by my head where I was going, I don't, I have no idea what's going on. Like, I don't know where one's at. I don't know. <laughs> what's happening how these guys are playing this stuff together yeah yeah i, I mean it's obviously organized because they're all playing the same thing at the same time but i can't figure it out and steve had been there once before so he had sort of got a, a read on it and and he started to work on it about the same time i did now that being said steve steve smith is the best student of this instrument i have ever met in my life mm-hmm. and we're we're very good friends and and he is, I mean, he just excels at an exceptional rate because he works so hard and he's so organized every day for hours and hours working on stuff. So he's well, that's, taken that's the Indian encouraging. thing. That, that's been encouraging, though. To We had a chance to, to talk on the, on the podcast, and I've met Steve a couple times, and I, I can say that somebody that plays at at that level and, and, and the level that you do, and, and I'd like to get yeah. into your... Uh, uh, talking about being a consummate student throughout your life, but it's those types of things I think many of us need to hear. 
it just doesn't just fall out of the sky. Like when you when we see the things and we hear the things that players like you and Steve Smith are doing, we're like, where does this come from? Well, it comes from an insane amount of hard work, organization, and just diving into it uh, every every day that you can. It's true, and and um, you know, I I have some good friends that are very successful physicians and you know, own their own practices and things. And I mean, they do the same thing. You know, they're constantly going to seminars. They're constantly going to learn about new uh, procedures and, of course, pharmaceuticals and things like that. And I mean, obviously, I want my doctor to be well informed. <laughs> you know? yes, yes. I mean, it's more important than the guy playing drums at the wedding. But I mean, it's it. it, it the, the point is, I'm no less serious about my job than he is. So, yes. even though his is life and death and, you know, things like that, um, mine's not necessarily life and death, but I'm equally as serious about it. I have a family to support and a career. And and besides that, I've always loved playing. I always just wanted to play. I mean, I always, my wife and I always, always talk about stuff, you know, because unfortunately, the way that a lot of people look at this business is they don't, and, and especially the way pop culture is now, they don't look at the playing level as the success. Mm. They only look at what surrounds that. The platinum records, the Grammy, the money, the fame, the blah, 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 whatever all the stuff is. Mm. But to me, yeah, Steve Smith is a wealthy man because he's in Journey. He makes a lot of money doing that. He's very famous. All the things that come along with that. But the success for me from Steve is the level of player that that guy is. Mm. What what an unbelievable success story that is. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, all that other stuff is a byproduct of your playing ability and your dedication to the instrument. And if you focus at all on that other stuff, other than common business practice that you want to make sure that you're, you know, competent on, yes. but focusing on that other stuff is that's the death of the whole thing because it, it, the success comes in the playing level and where the heights that you're able to reach as a musician and as an artist, all that other stuff will fall into place. It, yeah. it, when you're, when you're doing something well in any field, all those things come as a part of that skill set. There was an interview, there's some great interviews uh, that can be found online, and one of the things you talked about is, is people who take lessons early in life, and then they get going, and they're like, okay, I don't need lessons anymore, and you are like, I'm constantly learning. I know you're, you've been working on and off with uh, Peter Erskine recently. Yeah. Um, and I think that's always been in, the, I fall into that first camp where I took some lessons I studied uh, in school, went to school for music and, uh, just never got back into it. Had a few one-off lessons, Joel Rosenblatt and some local teachers here and there that, uh, but I, I feel disconnected. I feel like I want to keep doing it. And uh, just hearing that from you is like, ah, it's time to do that. And I think yeah. what I'm saying, it, it was just, it's just, it's very encouraging to hear that from you uh, that you're doing that. Um, well, so. great. 
Well, I mean, it, look at it. It's it's the same situation in a lot of other industries, yeah. but for some reason, musicians can't connect with that. You know, they they can't connect with the fact that lawyers have to do that, or scientists have to do that, or engineers or physicians, teachers. Yeah, it's a constant. Right. Everybody. Mm-hmm. So, and and look, there's nothing wrong with the situation that you find yourself in it's just that it you and like I, I think i've said before you might have found it on some interviews that if sometimes it's ego sometimes it's you know um hey look look at all the successes i've had quote unquote um how could i possibly go to a teacher that might be embarrassing or whatever i said like if you can't handle the word teacher just call it a coach <laughs> you know do sure a, sure yeah you know, T- Tiger Woods has a coach. You know, Tom Brady has a coach. So they're the best at it, it, it maybe in the history of what they do. So it, it, it's just a third party perspective. And yeah. yeah, I have an awesome time with Peter because um, I'll go down there. And I mean, there's been times where I would, I mean, I just, he hands me my rear end, you know, and I just walk <laughs> out of there going, why am I doing this? <laughs> That's you know, <laughs> and and then there's other times where I go down and 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 I'll we'll talk about something and you know literally I'll go to leave and give him his check and he'll go no I, I got more out of this today than you did it's, ah, it's, that's it's cool. on me wow that's amazing that's amazing yeah that's a really cool experience and you know the the key to that is making sure that you find the like yourself you're a professional guy playing at a high level so. The key for you is to find the the people that have the information that you don't. Yeah. And 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 getting to them. And mm-hmm. and I know that that's a benefit of my position in the industry that I can call Adam Nussbaum or that I can call Peter Erskine or Dave Weckel or Vinnie Caliuta. I mean, I know the guys, mm-hmm. and I I know that. And but the, the 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 key point is that you find the person with the information that you don't have and you go directly to those sources. And what I see a lot of people doing is going, you know, I want to be a session musician. And then they go study with the blues drummer that's in their local town or something. And it's like, but even though he might be great at what he's doing, he doesn't have the information that mm. that you're seeking out. He hasn't done 500 records, you know, mm-hmm. or movies or blah, blah, blah. So until they have that, that backstory to work from, they they can't really share that information with you. So just find the people that do what you want to do, sound the way you want to sound, and go to them and and right. get that. I mean, if it costs a lot of money, that's just life. That's the way it is. If you got to fly somewhere, you got to fly somewhere. You know. Well, and with it's, Skype lessons and other ways to access that information, I mean, it should be. It's a lot easier than it was even five years ago. Oh my goodness! Of course it is. You know, just gosh, us having this conversation, yeah. you on the West Coast. Is, yeah. is great. Well, uh, that's great. I, I want to uh, kind of get back to your, maybe we can just talk about, so what is your setup with like Andre Bocelli or with the Indian singer? How does it differ from, say, a typical drum set? Are you using anything different? Are you using different sticks, mallets? What's your mix like? How did you prepare for, for some of these things that are outside the pop or the mainstream music yeah that that's a great question you know it's it's always a balance of maintaining 
your acts, you know, to use a guitar term. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm I'm a, a big component of, uh, or a, I'm a big opponent of keeping the same uh, setup uh, as much as I possibly can because it's part of my muscle memory action. It's also it's also um, my tonal set where I know where certain sounds are. Mm-hmm. on the instrument it's probably not real wise to change the setup a lot because what happens is um you start to have to think about oh what do i have in front of me tonight during the thought process of what am i playing right now <laughs> yeah you know what i'm saying so yeah. it, especially in situations like when i was on american idol where i'm sight reading on television or in a movie date where I got nine page long charts with 10 different time signatures in them and, and I'm following a click and a conductor and I, where the instrument is position wise or where the sounds are, all that's gotta be firsthand, natural, automatic, cause I got too much other stuff to worry about. So that all being said, I keep a pretty consistent setup. I do change things tonally um, for certain gigs. With the Indian things, sometimes I use cymbals that have a little bit more white noise and trash into them that kind of sit into that music a little bit better. Okay. I'll use things like Steve Smith's Talawans. Um, they create a really high-end attack with and remove the, the bulkiness of the drum sound. And that helps not cover up or bury the tabla players and and some of those smaller sounding percussion instruments wow okay um that just sounds amazing i mean uh, playing with a good percussionist is always fun because it seems like there's they're covering more sonic ground uh oh man yeah. but, but this this type of percussionist just it's just sounds amazing sounds so fun it is so fun and it's it's super duper challenging because I mean, in, in its most basic form, uh, and why it was so difficult to learn, and and I, to me, it's a big success in my playing that I heard this in 2002, didn't know even what was going on at all, and by 2015 or so, I'm playing with some of the biggest Indian artists in the world, <laughs> and you know, that's I love those things, not yeah. not from an egotistical standpoint. I love it from a, you know, it's kind of like. When when Forrest Gump built the fire on on the beach, you know, or not Forrest Gump, but you know, in in Castaway, when Tom Hanks built the fire on the beach, and he's like, "Look what I have created!" You know, yeah. pounding his chest, and I'm going, "Look what I have done!" You know, yeah, like, uh, no, yeah, for sure. I mean, it's, it's accomplishing. It's it's seeing the result of of the work. Well, and and kind of looking ahead at the way the world has become smaller, this communication age, and as cultures um, come together and there's a fusion of music and cultures in our world more so than ever before. Do you see that as, um, I, I maybe this is a rhetorical question, I guess, as, it's, as I'm starting to uh, verbalize it, it seems silly to me to ask this, but as maybe young players look ahead the decades to come, kind of having a more worldly view of how these different musical styles affect our approach to the drum set. Do you feel like that's going to be more and more important as time goes I, on? I mean, 
It absolutely is because there is a lot more international stuff happening than there used to be. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I play on a lot of international records, you know, from yeah. China, and I just played on a guy's album from Madagascar <laughs> last month. And but it's here. Here's the thing that that's going on that I see with the drums and younger players, especially there's because of the fact that popular music is not based around acoustic instruments. Um, I see a lot of drummers and I mean, you, you've seen this, it's the YouTube drummer guy that takes other people's songs and, and, and plays all these crazy licks and everything over top of something that's completely not relative to what's going on musically. Mm Mm-hmm. And and you and and people are flipping out. They got a million views, and they're like, "This guy's amazing." And I'm like, "I appreciate the facility. I appreciate you know the, the work that it takes to do that." But at the end of the day, the understanding of what's going on with that communicative moment mm-hmm. is so remedial and so immature. Where where you go? Wait a minute, man. What you're playing has no relevance to what's going on with that song. You're just playing a bunch of drums over this song. Yeah. And so my my question for that is, don't di- you know? Are you disconnected from the fact that if you did that during the performance of that song, it would destroy the structure of the piece, um, or are you just going in a sort of rebellious way, like oh? Well, this is what should be on the music is all this drum stuff, you know. And the the point of that is not not to come down on the YouTube drummer thing. No, it's just to yeah. it's just to say why don't you look at it a different way rather than maybe with that re- rebellious spirit of, you know, I want to play a bunch on this thing and look at all the chops that I can put over this rap song. Why don't you step back and go where is the artistry in that piece? I'm not a huge rap fan, but there's certainly artistry in that music in in some form or another. Where is it? Yeah. How do I display that artistry? How do I get inside of that and communicate with people? And that's the part that knocks me out, where you don't step back and go, okay, hold on. There's not necessarily awesome drums in country music. I mean, there, you know, there, no one's going to break new ground rhythmically playing with Carrie Underwood. But the point is, there's an art to that of making it feel good, getting the great, yeah. the right sounds, yeah. making the composition stand out, and making sure that the story that's being told through that lyric is more important than anything that you're playing. And that attitude is what gets you to understand those different music styles and then communicate with them. Just having that approach from the get-go, I think, is the key. I think it's it's wanting to know the end, re- like, what is the goal there? If if the goal is to get millions of hits to do some type of very uh, Olympic-style drumming, if that's your thing, then I think you've got it. You know, but if your goal is to work with Carrie Underwood, then you need to have a more subtler, subtler understanding of what it takes to count a band in, to play with a click, to play with tracks and make it feel good, to um, yes. communicate with other musicians on on stage, off stage, in the studio. There's a skill set 
that is overlooked for all the flash, the pomp and circumstance that I think is now taking up a lot of is getting is getting garnering a lot of attention right now, and uh, this is a a common theme that comes up a lot on this podcast where people are like, what is what are these people trying to prove? What is the point of this? And yeah, yeah. it is fun to watch. And there are things that that it's it's entertaining and it's amazing, but maybe that's just what it is, and that's and and that's that's what it is alone. Yeah, but if I, I, mean, I agree with you, and, and I, I, yeah, I mean, I, I mean, I would hope that no one started playing the instrument to get views on YouTube. I, I, I have to believe in that everyone would start to play music with a band or make records or go on tour or do all the things that, you know, obviously make sense to do. Mm-hmm. But you know what? I'm older. I don't, I didn't grow up with YouTube. So for me, it's, it's just this outlet for marketing, to be honest with you. And yeah. And maybe, it's and, and, you know, a, yeah. it's a tool of the remedial for the, the, for the, um, the companies, you know, when they go, oh, this person has more views than that person, so he must be more famous, so let's get him on an endorsement or something because he's going to have more people see him. And it's like, okay, right, but I also have a little kid picking the booger out of his dog's nose that's got 40 million views. <laughs> that's not going to sell drums. I mean, it's I don't quite understand why companies – I mean, this is helps facilitate it. Companies go, oh, we're going to sign this person from Europe that has never done a gig or one record, and but has a tons of views, so they must be awesome. And we're going to give them an endorsement, and they're going to be on interviews, and they're going. And it's not that they can't play the drums well. Now, that's not the point. They can play well. It's just the issue is it confuses the marketplace, and yes. then all of a sudden it becomes a viable track yes. for people. And that's the issue. And, you know, I've said that, man, I've had with, with some of these companies, I mean, I've had discussions with like, what are you doing? Like Peter Erskine's got 10,000 views and this person's got 10 million. So is he better than Peter Erskine? Yeah. No. It's it, a different demographic of people that are looking to Peter for something different. You know, like you said, it's not the entertaining, wow, check that out and then move on. The people that are watching Peter are, are more influential, more serious musicians that understand what's happening when Peter Erskine touches the instrument. And, you know, so the views thing, that's a tool of the remedial, in my, in my opinion, yeah, for the, especially it, for the companies. You know, it's, right. I mean, my, my eight-year-old daughter can go, look, that guy's got more views than that guy. He must be better. I mean, come on. I understand. It's, it's just like promoting this false narrative that's not going to help move music forward and right. and I, I i understand and there's this this danger of companies that are that are looking into that and, and helping to promote something that is not going to help the artistry of what we're all trying to do and why we're here i think it's it's a um it's not a sustainable um way to do things <laughs> it's not good no it, it reminds me a lot of magicians you know like you, you you can only go see the magic act how many times can you see the same tricks i mean even though they're great tricks mm-hmm. once you've seen them a few times you go i saw that right. and right you know and, and look i don't want to dig on those guys i appreciate sure. what they're doing and sure. i appreciate the work that they put into it and and all that i just want them to understand and, and everybody else to understand you know what the goal is here 
there's two kinds of music that happens for soundtrack. One is called a, a source piece, and that could be anything from them getting a Rolling Stones song to be in the movie to you recording a song for a moment in the uh, the structure of the movie that is just played as uh, a song. So that that you know maybe it's the romantic scene and and you know it's the song from Titanic or whatever right that mm-hmm. that kept coming up that's called a source piece okay. um and that's pretty much like doing a, a record where you just go in and record this song the other one is called a cue and and a cue is um it's specifically written for the moment in the movie and it can be anywhere from literally 5 seconds long to 10 minutes or 15 minutes it all depends on how the director and the composer are handling music in in the composition of the film. Um, Some directors don't like that much music. Some of them like a lot of music. I mean, look at Star Wars has a lot of music, for Mm -hmm, instance. mm -hmm. Um, So those cues can be literally anything. Now, the one thing I always say about soundtrack sessions is they don't film movies in 4-4, you know, (laughs) so... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> what happens is, you know, they, they they do what's called spotting with the composer. So the the director and the and the composer, um, they use uh, temp pieces. So the director and his music editor might go in and use, let's say, a bunch of music from the Matrix soundtrack to cut in uh, little pieces here and there, all over. It's sort of like doing a demo. Okay. So they'll take the temp track where the director and the music editor went in and put all these other people's music in, but they did it in the, what's called spotting, meaning where it's going to go from you know two minutes, 20 seconds to two minutes, 33 seconds. There's music, and it should have this kind of vibe. Oh, okay. Then he's, he goes through with the composer, and then they work out what all those cues are going to be and how long they're going to be. That gets brought to me. Uh, for drums and percussion after they sort of orchestrate what it's going to be. They have tempos, they have lengths and all that other stuff. And then it's either written out very specifically by the composer or for composers that I work with a lot, like Michael Dana or Andrew Lockington or Jeff Dana or Julian Wass or all those guys that I've done a lot of movies for, um, they sort of go, hey, they're on a market in Paris. A guy, you know, drives a car in. Uh, it's a sci-fi movie. Go, you know. And I got to figure out sonically what makes sense with the piece they wrote, with you know, structurally for the movie. I mean, I don't want to use organic Latin percussion tones if it's a sci-fi movie. Yeah, you know, yeah. I got to come up with tones that are a bit ambiguous, you know, like, what is that? It kind of sounds like a conga, but not really, you know, and, and and then vice versa. If we're, if it's a movie in Africa, then I don't want to use synthesizers and arpeggiators, you know, or or I want to use organic sounds. So there's a lot of sound design involved. I do a lot more artistic tonal things with movies than I think, especially now with records. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there's not much going on tonally with records. I, there was a, a rash of stuff that I did in the late nineties, like those early Nelly Furtado records and stuff, um, where we were really, really messing around with sounds. And 
and spending a lot of time and record dates doing that kind of stuff, but not so much anymore. You know, I, I for movies is when I really pull out the vintage kits and the the metal sounding, the metal shelled kits and the acrylic mm-hmm. sets, and and I got a, a warehouse full of everything from orchestral percussion to world percussion. There's about 19 different drum kits and about 85 snare drums, hundreds Jeez. of cymbals. That's what's helped a lot with having my room, too, is we used to do that stuff in other studios. So yeah. by the time we carded all that stuff to Capitol Records and set it up and mic'd it and got the tones and everything, you, you know, you're running up a big tab. Yeah. So that's why my room and, and rooms like it, guys that do what I do, like Matt Chamberlain or Kenny Aronoff or J.R. Robinson, everybody's got rooms because it, it really helps their budgets a lot. Um, if if nothing else for cartage, you know, to get all right. the stuff there. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it, there, that, again, the technology is allowing that type of thing to happen. It's pretty amazing. They put it up on the server. I bring it down. Everything is time coded and time stamped. It's all done in Pro Tools HD. Okay. Uh, and then I put layers and upon layers of stuff on it. And sometimes it's programming, sometimes it's drums, sometimes it's both. A lot of times I re-trigger things. I'll cut it on acoustic drums and then trigger from tape samples layered on the drums and let the actual drum tracks re-trigger everything. So, oh, that's cool. That's really yeah. Awesome. I mean, I don't know if you're hip to doing that, but you know, the the I say tape machine showing my age, but <laughs> when you <laughs> when let's say I record the snare drum track, right? Yeah, I run, I run an output out of that snare drum track out of Pro Tools into the drum trigger module. Mm-hmm. Well, the same voltage signal that comes from the actual trigger on a pad or on the drum is there's a voltage signal coming through that that line from the snare drum track. Yes, so yeah, I can set the trigger response just like I would if it was a trigger and literally just let my snare track play down yeah. and re-trigger samples that I can layer with it later on or just use the samples. Yeah. It's me playing, but now it's samples, yeah. right? Yeah. You know, there, ironically, there's a little bit of an example of that in a uh, an existing ad that we have for uh, a publication, an online publication called Not So Modern Drummer. And uh-huh. we started running it this month, and the music that we did for that um, was put together by myself and uh, one of the guys on our team here, Mike Jackson, who helps us with that. And uh, so it's just this real simple, just kind of backdrop music that we did. And that, we used the hi-hat track to trigger this white noise kind of keyboard thing that comes through the second time. Uh, right. It plays and it it'll, it'll be in the in the middle of our conversation here. It it'll it'll creep in uh, if 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 people are aware of that. Uh, you'll hear this like white noise coming in and it, and as opposed to try and line it up with things or trying to match a loop ahead of time, we added it using the hi hat to trigger that and layered it. And Mike's all about that stuff, and I'm just starting to get involved in that. And you start to see the benefits of that in creating sound design, which I'm just I'm becoming more and more interested and fascinated with. It's really amazing. It's pretty slick, and and it's great that you you can tell that to the listeners because, like, when we're talking, let's say we're talking about that YouTube drummer thing. Yeah. You know, spend some time working on those things and getting your chops with those things so that when the rap guy calls or the RB guy calls, you can produce that music tonally for those people. And 
guess what? You're going to have a gig and be working and making money doing this. You're, you know, and that's that's some of the skill sets that I think are getting a bit lost. It's still astonishing to me since I, I've had electronic gear since 1983. It's still astonishing to me how many drummers are not hip to what's going on electronically. It's 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 yeah, well. Maybe it's just not as sexy as real drums. <laughs> so we're so well, I, fasc- agree, I agree with that. <laughs> we're so fascinated, and and I think my apprehension towards it for uh, many years was, I just don't want to sit behind a, a computer all day and stare at a screen. I want to play, yeah. but I'm finding some joy in doing some of this stuff. And as as I'm trying to diversify my workload now that I'm off the road and I don't have a full time road gig anymore. I'm discovering these things uh, I'm really enjoying, but I think what makes you a a, a marketable uh, person that that uh, can find work is that you are thinking like a musician you are you have a drummer brain you can you know how things work when when a keyboard player says, "Yeah, I programmed drums for this track, and you're like, okay, yeah, but." you don't understand the mechanics of the drum set the way I do. And I tell you, I can do this. I can make things feel a certain way by lining it up uh, around the click or whatever. And I know how to compose a drum fill or that make it, make it feel the way it should feel. So I think you have to take stock in the fact that we have experience so that when you dive into that stuff, utilize that experience to create something sonically and feel wise that no one else can do but you yeah exactly and and that's the that's really what it's all about is that you know no one can touch the instrument or create a specific feel the same way you do and that's why i can go let's say we'll call it an audition but that's why I, me, Vinny Caliuta, Steve Gadd, Billy Cobham, and Buddy Rich can all go to the audition, and I can get called for it. Now, obviously, those guys are all mega drummers and mega stars and can play music at a high level. But mm-hmm. if, that, if that producer likes my approach, yeah. I'm in. And it's, I, I always look at it like acting acting is exactly the same and and Rick Murata said something to me years ago that I always say is that you know we are we are actors delivering a script mm. the script is the song and the composition and we deliver it in a way that only you can deliver it and you have to look at it that way uh to rise to any high level of understanding of executing music it's Robert De Niro and Al Pacino both reading the same screenplay, but they come off completely different reading it. And it's exactly the same words. It's exactly the same thing. The director says, I like the way Pacino does it. Doesn't mean Robert De Niro's not a great actor. He obviously is. But he just likes the way he's delivering it for that character, for his music, for his movie. And you have to look at it the same way. Once you pass the what I call a proficiency line, meaning... Now you play with great time and, and a great pocket and you have a great sound and now you've entered professional level playing. That's the only thing left is design, is creating that voice that only you have and understanding what that is and what the components of it are. It's very difficult. It's the hardest thing that I've ever done. I'm still working on it. 
So where do you go to find a treasure trove of information about vintage drums, custom drums, and legendary drummers? NotSoModernDrummer.com. Since 1988, Not So Modern Drummer is an institution dedicated to researching and documenting the history of modern drums, the art of drum building, and the legendary drummers who play them. The writers and contributors are some of the top vintage and custom drum experts from around the world. Not So Modern Drummer serves as an online gathering place and marketplace for the worldwide community of drummers who buy and sell, collect, preserve, and play these instruments. It also hosts drum-related events that are attended by drummers from all over the world. This website is easy and fun to explore, and the monthly digital magazine subscription is free. So check out NotSoModernDrummer.com. KHS has been super awesome and big supporters of the podcast, which we're just more than thankful for. And um, so the one thing they wanted to do was start running this uh, Mapex ad that focused on the Black Panther Design Lab. These yeah. Essentially, three but four snare drums uh, that are, are were new to Nam, and uh, I went out there, and I, of course I talk about it in the ad, and they said, "Do you want to? Are you interested in trying one of these out?" And I took the Heartbreaker, uh, okay. the mahogany snare drum, and I actually was working on an album project, and and used it on three tracks. And uh, been doing some gigs with it and some rehearsals and some different things like that. And just completely fallen in love with this thing. Um, the four snare drums, um, your involvement in designing and product designing, that's always been, I know that's been a big thing, a big part of your um, skill set and your interest. Uh, yeah. And so um, maybe a little bit about that and then getting into these snare drums if you could. Sure. Yeah, I mean... I um I've been heavily involved in product design for a long time. I mean, part of it was that I had a hobby of uh, architectural engineering and finished cabinetry. They were just my hobbies. I mean, I took classes on them in, in school, and and literally, I never had any intention of ever doing them for careers. It was just something that I liked to do. So I had enough chops to draw something up and to possibly make a prototype especially if it was made out of wood and and um i'm sure you and the listeners know of a lot of the signature products like the sub kick and the right. groove wedges and and uh minor multi-bell or you know whatever all that stuff but um i've done a lot of other stuff uh that people don't know about like the vintage wood hoops at yamaha and and part of the yes system design and and um all the DTX gear from 1995 on at Yamaha and uh, several symbol lines at Zildjian, the the, uh, the Avidus series uh, and the new K-Custom Special Dries that just came out. And uh, there's just a lot of stuff. That, my point is I just that doesn't have my name on it that I've okay. been involved in. And yeah. in um, 2016, in June, um, I had done some stuff with Mapex since coming to Mapex in 2013. I did the Sonicleer bearing edge and the Sonicleer Tom mount and things to um just things that I wanted to, you know, up the ante on the on the instrument over there with and uh we we worked on that me and Joe Hibbs. Uh fortunately Joe passed last year. Right. 
And um, in in June of last year, they asked me to actually become you know one of the R and D consultants um, for the company, which means that there's a dedicated amount of time each month that I that I work on stuff for them. Okay. And um, so what you're seeing come of that is that what what's called the Mapex Design Lab, which is basically um, me and a group of the uh, R and D team and engineers in Taiwan. Uh, along with a few other artists that are used uh, as sort of a panel reference panel, and um, we, it's a it's a new sect of Mapex drums. It's very high end, um, and the idea is is that we are setting out to create specific sound uh, ideas or tonal ideas, and we do that with by what's called a concept hybrid. So, for instance. I, you said the heartbreaker snare. So if I remember right, uh, we use a, a, their concept hybrids of sound. So just sound ideas. So I think the heart, I want to say the heartbreaker was rustic, dark, and controlled. I'm not quite sure. I'd have to look on my sheets. But um, we take those three ideas and we try to make a drum that does specifically that. Okay. Um, right. Like the cherry brom is vintage and precise, um, and the the heartbreaker right com- uh, combines a, a dark rustic throaty sounds. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. Dark rustic throaty. Right. Right. The cherry bomb. It should be vintage and precise. There feels for vintage. Concept. Yeah, but yeah. built with modern precision, reliability, and function. Right. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And then the equinox is. Uh, uh, classic bright and articulate i think yes exactly mm-hmm. yeah and the cherry bombers two models there's 14 and a 13 but same same specs just different size um but anyway you know a lot of companies every time they release a, especially a snare drum it does every it's got the crack and it's got the bite and it's got the bottom end and it's got the sure it does <laughs> you know <laughs> you know every every drum does everything because they're so afraid they might not sell one if if somebody hears it it's oh it's got crack i don't want crack i only want bottom end you know it's like look they do what they do if, if they didn't have a specific job then we wouldn't have 80 snare drums we'd have one you know right right so uh and you know that was the point of the versata snare drum i did that a little while ago as one of my artist drums i mean what i wanted to make was a a drum that sat in the middle and that did a lot of things that kind of sort of like i would just start the session with that and then as we started to refine sounds i would move into something that was more sonically defined you know sure and that was the point is like that's why it's called versatis which means versatile in latin and and it was you know, this is our my general snare. It works for a lot of different stuff. Yeah. And then if I needed a heartbreaker to get a lot more throaty bottom end, I'd move to that or the the you know or, or a small metal drum or something. So that's kind of how it gets put together. The first offerings are those four snare drums. Um, there's a lot of science. Um, there's a lot of discussions about the composition and how drums are put together and. Uh, we have we use the Janka scale, which talks about densities and hardness of wood, um, to to know which woods are going to produce what sounds, mm-hmm. and it's really it's really a, a high level discussion of creating drum sounds. And there's, there's a lot of stuff coming from Design Lab. 
uh, especially this year. And I really think that uh, when people see what Mapex is doing and, and how much authority they have in the production and the, and the composition of these sounds and instruments, I think there's going to be a real different you know, look at Mapex as a brand because you know, they've done so well at creating uh, kits and, and things that are – you get so much for your money. I mean, look at the Armory set. It's – I, I can't even believe what you get for it's seven hundred ninety nine dollars and a lacquered drum kit with you know plated hardware and you can choose three different colors of plating of hardware and then it comes with a snare drum that if you, if you want to swap the snare for five other ones you can do it for free and it yeah. it's all hand yeah. lacquered with gloss and it, it, for seven hundred ninety nine dollars are you kidding me yeah it's <laughs> like, pretty amazing that's pretty amazing it's, it's unbelievable and and what happens is you know mapex has kind of got a reputation of that that 800 dollar drum set thing you know and mm-hmm. and or a thousand dollar drum set thing but uh, with design lab it's really showing what mapex is capable of um from a design and authoritative perspective of of the instrument and what you're going to see coming is just some of the stuff is groundbreaking innovation that you've never seen before and you're i'm telling you in in a year people are going to look back at mapex and go wow what is going on over there and i mean that's what drew me to it in 2013 was that that company was uh, heading upwards with an upward pulse, and a lot of the other companies, which I, you know, I know all those guys. I tried all those drums when I when I left Yamaha. I, I, it's not like I'm not familiar with everybody's stuff. I am, yeah. But Mapex to me was the ones going. No, we're going to do this thing. You know, we're going to make this high end stuff and create this 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 other sect of drums, and it's going to. I mean. You know, everyone else was going. Man, we can't sell stuff. We want to run to China and make five hundred dollar drum sets. You know, and. Yeah. That's to be honest with you. That's what kind of drew me over to Mapex was all the possibilities and the facility that was going to be available because of their approach and what they were trying to do. Yeah. And um, it took a little longer than I wanted, but it's coming to fruition now. And you've seen the first uh, offerings of that. I mean, my snare drum was obviously one of them, but but these first four from Design Lab are kind of the first things landing in the market. So I'm really glad you dig it, man. Really well, like. yeah, not only have I seen it, I've he- I've heard it and. Again, I've just started working with this young artist and, and the producer that's helping to kind of do some managing and, and, and help cut his record. And he's using just some of the the best drummers here in Nashville, as well as, uh, I mean, he's worked with so many people. He's good friends with Kenny Aronoff. He uses Matt Chamberlain all the time. So this guy loves drummers, loves drums. I come into the rehearsal, first day of the rehearsal, I bring the heartbreaker you know, he's playing guitar, he's listening. People are like, okay, there's drums, whatever. He turns, he's like, that snare drum sounds great. I'm like, all right. You know, he's not a drummer, but he cares yeah. about drums. He's producing, he's he's doing things. So I'm like, well, that's, that's quite an endorsement. Yeah, that's awesome. And I love to hear that because, um, you know, that's the goal. Like, the, the drum does what it does extremely well and... And I test all of that stuff over microphones. Um, almost all of the testing is done. And it's the same thing with the Versatis drum. Everybody always comes back for the Versatis and goes, man, that thing records like a million dollars. And I'm like, every single test that I ran with that drum was done with a microphone. Because yeah. 
that's it. It's got to translate over a microphone, right? I mean, really, the only person that hears it right in front of it are you. I mean, everyone else hears it with a microphone. Well, exactly. And sometimes when you hear drums by themselves, especially in the studio, you're like, man, I don't know about this. But somehow when it makes its way through the microphone and, 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 and to the tape... As we say, uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> uh, no, it, they're they're beautiful. Uh, there's there's just a lot of natural beauty about them. There's a classic look about the cherry bomb with the the tube lugs. Uh, the Equinox yeah. too has a great classic look. The, they all have pure sound snares, which I've always been a big fan of. And yep. uh, and and then this uh, the cylinder cylinder drive strainer that uh, yep. is has been cool because I could tell, man, even as I change the tuning on the heartbreaker i'm i'm tuning it way low and just beating the snot out of it 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 still keeps the snares where i need to it's it's been great man it's it's, it's been yeah. fun to discover I, yeah. i'm almost embarrassed to bring that snare drum back to khs uh because uh i've i've used it a lot you know take it for a test drive it's gonna need new <laughs> tires uh. <laughs> <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I love to hear that. I mean, I think you'll really enjoy the Equinox too. That's a that's a really nice instrument. Yeah, and, yeah. Um, I mean, the Cherry Bomb to me, it's a Radio King with new hardware. I yeah, mean, okay. that's that's what we did. I'm like, I, I want my Radio King sound. I just don't want the janky old sixty year old hardware that's on it. You know? <laughs> yeah, man, that's great. Russ, man, thanks for making yourself just so accessible and and working around your schedule to make this happen. I oh. mentioned to my co-host that we were going to be speaking today, and he was he was freaking out. He was real excited that we can do this. But um, oh, it's a joy! It's a joy, man. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate your interest and great questions. Cool. Yeah, it's fun. To, it's fun to talk to a knowledgeable player. You know, yeah. who do interview stuff. It's great. <laughs> Well, it, you there's again there's lots of great interviews and videos of you that I encourage people to check out um, in doing some more digging and research. I just wanted to make sure that we covered some things that maybe haven't been covered, uh, yeah, for sure. And um, it's just uh, this this podcast always opens up my world that much more uh, in just these personal conversations, and and I think. Of course, we've been doing it for over two years now, and just with everyone's support and uh, just more people getting interested and wanting to participate in one way or another has helped us grow, and and, and you're a part of that now, so I I appreciate that, Russ. Thank you, and keep it up, man. It's awesome. It's tremendous information. I've listened to several of them, and it's you guys are killing it, man. I mean, you got the right cats, and and, um, what a wealth of information, you know. It's awesome. Good. Russ, thanks, man, so much. Uh, Enjoy the rest of your day. Thanks, man. I appreciate it, man. We'll talk soon. Okay. Bye-bye. All right. Thanks. Bye-bye. I want to thank Russ for taking the time to give me a call and talk. I also want to thank KHS for their continued support, as I mentioned in this uh, podcast. We uh, took a little extra time to talk about gear more so than we have, but I think that Russ is is the perfect uh, guy to talk to about gear. His interest in product development is uh, is obvious. He shares a passion and a curiosity that I think we all have when it comes to our instrument. As always, my thanks goes to Mike Jackson for his technical assistance. Stay tuned next week for Zach Albetta's interview. I want to share something real quick with you guys. Uh, we did a roundtable with Nick Ruffini from Drummer's Resource and uh, with Zach Albetta, my co-host, and I a few episodes back. And I received an email from a guy named Brian Shanley, 
And it was a really great email. I asked if I could share this. And so I want to just read a a couple short bits from this. Um, Brian writes, Matt, man, this podcast is really something special and is so beneficial to my headspace and in my music career. Um, He says he's still catching up on them. And he writes, you absolutely nailed it for this guy here, having Zach and Nick from Drummer's Resource, another fave of mine for the recent Drummer's Podcast Roundtable. Um, You know, from struggling with some big changes, smaller towns, going from 150 dates a year to zip in a matter of months, having great supportive wives with jobs they dig, kids, and and having to make ends meet where you can and taking non-music gigs. Brian explains that he was listening during his first non-music gig in over a decade, and it's picking up litter and garbage in his neighborhood. He writes to make extra dough for his two daughters who are his world, which is awesome. And just that podcast goes on about you know breaking perceptions of what it's like to work in this industry. And Brian writes... It was just a perfect attitude adjustment. I really needed your perspectives. The last thing he writes, um, thank you so much for all the effort and time you put into Working Drummer Podcast. It has been a great value to me, and I'm certain that many of us out here working from bars to stadiums and then sometimes back to the bars or even litter picking, I'm going to be listening to that one over and over. Thanks again, Brian Shanley. So that was just a few episodes ago with, uh, again, Nick Ruffini and Zach and I just talking about some real stuff, some real shit that we're all dealing with right now. But anyways, um, we, again, thank you for your support. Thanks for your input. Thanks for just, just communicating with us. And I hope to see you around. Bye-bye. <laughs>